Hello, my name's David Runciman and this is Talking Politics. Today's Talking Politics guide is with Chris Brooke, historian of political thought and political theorist, and he is going to be telling us about distributive justice. These Talking Politics guides are brought to you as ever in partnership with the London Review of Books, whose summer sale with the Paris Review, two subscriptions for one low price, is open to Talking Politics listeners. Head to lrb.co.uk forward slash guides for more information, along with the usual lists of further readings from the LRB archive. Justice is a complicated idea. Distributive justice is a slightly daunting phrase. What makes distributive justice different from other ways of thinking about justice? The usual distinctions are between distributive justice and, let's say, corrective justice or commutative justice. Corrective justice is what we think of with the criminal justice system, the idea that there have been uh, violations of right and they have to be corrected, or that under certain circumstances compensation might be called for and so on. Commutative justice is a story about how we engage with one another in our everyday dealings, what counts as just dealings with one another. Distributive justice nowadays looks at the broad pattern of the distribution of goods across a society and argues that a language of justice can be used to make a case for why certain distributions of the good things in life are morally desirable or morally required. The language of distributive justice has changed quite strikingly over time. If you go back to the 18th century and before, distributive justice concerns, in the first instance, what we would call today the honours system. It's a matter, if you're the prince, how you hand out honours, how you distribute the recognition that you're, you have the prerogative to do. And a master of distributive justice is somebody who does that appropriately. So in our sense, it's closer to a language of meritocracy, of recognised merit. But around the end of the 18th century and certainly into the 19th and 20th century, the language of distributive justice, what distributive justice is, has changed and now refers to this story about who gets what or who ought to get what uh, in any given society. In the 19th century, two big developments that have their roots in the 18th century and I think change this. One is democracy. So how does the invention of modern democracy shape how people think about this question across a whole society? I think more important than the rise of democracy is radical changes in the way people think about property. So until right through the 18th century, the property that people are contemplating is is private property. There's a lot of big aristocratic estates out there that are passed down from eldest son to eldest son. And those become increasingly troublesome for various reasons. But there's still a thought that it's not eccentric to envisage a society of smallholders where people can own the land they farm or people can own the house they live in. The changes wrought by mechanisation of both agriculture and industry, the rise of the enormous cities, 
uh, the great changes attendant on what we call the Industrial Revolution or the intensification of, of modern capitalism create a completely new landscape in the 19th century where the idea that ordinary families can own their own home or ordinary farmers can farm the land they work on becomes fantastical. And that changes the way people think about what a proper distribution of property should look like. What kinds of property should we have? Should we have socialised property? Should we have cooperative property? And so on. Democratization, in part, is the story of the expansion of the political nation, of those with political rights, but at the same time, a story about uh, how now that the masses do have, or chunks of the masses do have, real political power, how forms of property can go along with that. And that's the great anxiety in the 19th century of what would democracy of proletarians look like, because Britain was absolutely a proletarian nation. The other invention of the 19th century, in a way it has its roots in the 18th century, is what we now call economics, as a way of thinking about the world as separate discipline. How does that factor into this, the idea that there is a an economist's perspective on questions of justice? It's only comparatively recently, since around the 1930s, that Economists have had this very strong self-image of themselves as engaging in a technical or scientific discipline that is neutral or silent about the ultimate ends of what they're engaged with, apart from with a general recommendation of efficiency in pursuit of whatever your goals are. That's a self-image of the economic profession that very much derives from Lionel Robbins' essay on the nature and significance of economic science. Before that, economics was often held to be one of the moral sciences. You could study economics if you were a student of the moral sciences here in Cambridge at the end of the 19th century. And distribution was very much seen as a part of economics, or as it was called once upon a time, political economy. And there's something quite interesting about the way economics or political economy approached these questions, which people sometimes don't always expect, which is that economics has baked into it quite a powerful formal egalitarianism, which is to say economics is the science of what happens when people make exchanges, when people buy and sell as equals. They have to have broadly similar legal entitlements in order to meet as equals in a marketplace governed by rules or governed by law. And that takes us into one of the the dismissive labels that's used about economists, even down to the present. You'll sometimes hear people saying that economics is the dismal science. It's a label from the 19th century that caught on. If you look at the context of that remark, it's very, very interesting. It's Thomas Carlyle who's getting angry about the political economists because they tend to be opposed to slavery. And he says that economics is the dismal science because people think that Jamaican workers should be free and and that slavery is bad. And so right through the 18th and the 19th century, you have all kinds of these people who have still had this basically radically hierarchical vision of how human beings should engage with one another. Some people should command, some should be commanded. As the 19th century goes on, that often gets racialized in a story about superior and inferior races. And one of the interesting things about the economists is that they do have a certain kind of egalitarianism in their DNA, which is that the world that they want to think about and the world that they want to model is one of legally free and equal producers and consumers who are looking to make exchanges that will work to the advantage of both of them. Obviously, in lots of other ways, lots of economists have been highly tolerant of the status quo and highly tolerant and even supportive of great economic inequalities. But there is something interesting about what we might call the DNA of political economy that does push in a certain kind of egalitarian direction. 
Is it true now, has it ever been true that there is a fundamental choice to be made in thinking about distributive justice between the state as the primary deliverer of this justice and the market, as it's sometimes called the free market? Is, is politics ever about choosing between those two vehicles of delivering justice? Again, this is a story with a historical angle to it, which is that up until the first part of the 20th century, the idea that the state could control or direct or plan a vast modern economy was basically absurd. I mean, lots of people down to the present think that Adam Smith's Wealth of Nations is the great big book that warns against interference with the market. But The Wealth of Nations was published in 1776, and there's no way that the state in 1776 could interfere with or control or plan the market in anything like a socialist or a social democratic fashion. Smith is talking about other things. Over the course of the 19th century, state capacity does grow, but lots of stories about what a decent economy would look like focus on the role that cooperatives might play. So this is one of the things that John Stuart Mill, the great Victorian liberal, is interested in and optimistic about, he thinks that left to their own devices, co-ops will tend to out-compete privately held firms, which is not a view that tends to be especially widely held today. But I think the turning point in some ways is the period of the First World War, that's to say the imperialist powers of Europe build these vast behemoths, these vast leviathans, to use an old-fashioned word in the history of political thought, to fight total war against one another. And it's those enormous bureaucratic machines that people realise are the kinds of machines that can be used to dominate an entire economy or plan an entire economy. And so that's when the debate changes. You get people like Otto Neurath, who's better known as a philosopher of science, as a member of the Vienna Circle, but he's directing the War Museum in Leipzig, I think, during the First World War. And he thinks that the the way you build socialism in Germany is just by continuing and deepening the system of wartime controls into, into peacetime. You don't try to go back to the status quo. But it's those kinds of things that set us up for the debates we're most familiar with, where in the post-Second World War period, uh, in the world of the mixed economy or the Keynesian social democratic welfare state, we recognise that states do play a very large role in economic management. And arguments about justice or arguments about distribution tend to be directed through stories about public policy and stories about what it is the state can do and then gets criticised from two sides. First, by people who think the state can't really do that, that modern states just aren't the right kind of machines that can engineer desirable outcomes in any kind of predictable way, or for people who think that even if the state can do that, it ought not to do that, because states ought to be much more restrained or constrained kinds of actors. Do you therefore think that the reaction against the the Keynesian model was primarily to go back to what you said earlier about efficiency, or does it have those deeper roots in a moral vision that it's not just what the state can and can't do, but what it ought not to do, and the reaction of economists like Hayek and others. I think these things are bound up one with another. I mean, Hayek's the very interesting case because he develops his critique of the planned economy in the 1930s. He's engaged in the the so-called socialist planning debate. He popularises his ideas through his book, The Road to Serfdom, that's published during the Second World War. And then he spends 20 or 30 years building up a network through the Montpellerin Society of like-minded people who are very aware that their ideas are unfashionable and that they don't really have the ear of, of power and so on. 
the story of that network is part of a story about why when the turn in economic policymaking happens in the 1970s, it happens in such a thoroughgoing way that Hayek's network has a lot of people in a lot of countries who are embedded in bureaucracies or in the financial press or whatever, and the ideas get popularised very fast. There is obviously a moral story that goes along with what we now increasingly call neoliberalism, a story about individual responsibility and so on, that's intimately connected with the turn in policymaking. Um, But where it comes from in the first instance is the Western states running into technical and political difficulties in the 1970s rather than there being any radical change of ideas about morality uh, I think in that sense the morals are downstream of the technical policy making apparatus How much difference does it make to these arguments and it touches on what you were talking about earlier that sometimes the underlying premises are highly racialized. they have a view of human hierarchy and in the second half of the 20th century we've also seen you know, sweeping movements which are ideas about justice but relate to relations between the genders, between people from different ethnic backgrounds and so on. How much does that change the who gets what question? Oh, I think it potentially has an extraordinarily far-reaching impact on these kinds of questions, that much of the literature that we have, especially the best-known literature, does presuppose a society that has socioeconomic divisions that can be ameliorated or can be addressed through state action. Now, the classic example of this is John Rawls's book, A Theory of Justice, published in 1971, that has a very distinctive concern for the conditions of life of what he calls the least well-off group in society. And I'm reasonably confident that when John Rawls thinks about the least well-off group in society, he's thinking about a group that the Marxists call the proletariat. That's to say, he's thinking about the unskilled working class, people who have no assets or who don't have, as we might say, human capital of their own, and so enter a labour market with no advantages and so have to take whatever the going wage rate is for unskilled labour. Rawls's idea is that if you make the welfare, if you make the conditions of life of that group a priority for thinking about what a just social order would look like, you create a non-exploitative society, you create a society where it just isn't true that the poor are poor because the rich are rich. Rather, any inequalities of that kind that there are are going to be those that tend to the advantage of those at the bottom of the heap. Once you start thinking that modern society is a much more complicated and variegated set of groups it becomes impossible to pick out a least well-off group. It becomes hard to say why the group that happens to be the least well-off according to whatever contested judgment you make should be, its interest should be prioritised above those of everybody else. Everyone else should just go into the general mix. So these things become very complicated. And I think also the extent to which social and economic inequalities turn on very deep-rooted aspects of our social system, whether it's the politics of dispossession in societies like North America or Australia where indigenous groups were were dispossessed and marginalised, whether it's in Western societies that are built around a norm of heterosexual family relationships where the position of women historically has been to be subordinated to men. There's a tendency in a lot of the justice literature for the focus to be on this idea that you presuppose that households and families are just and then you think about what the implications for public policy are but once you start opening up the black box of what goes on inside the family which is what feminists have been doing for 
uh, for decades now, things become much more complicated. And one easy way out is to go to a radical individualist model and say that you're going to pay attention not to the big social groups that whether Marxist theory or Rawlsian theory has been interested in, but you're going to treat each and every member of society as a social atom armed with rights and privileges and entitlements and so on. Uh, but then it gets um, things get very, very complicated in, in other ways when you do that. So I do think that the different axes of inequality and domination and oppression in modern societies do make these stories very, very difficult. It means that often the, the left liberal discourse of distributive justice often ends up looking like a kind of apology for the status quo, even though that's not how its own proponents think of it. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. As you've described it, the tendency is to think about how you distribute across a given society. And these have been national societies for the most part. There's also a wider question, which is, what would it look like across the whole planet, the globe? Is that a new thought, the idea that actually the fundamental question about who gets what is who gets what on a global level? I think aspects of that are new, that idea that you might have a distributive theory of global justice that could make quite detailed pronouncements about what individual entitlements anyone anywhere in the world might have. Uh, because again, I think in the 18th or the 19th centuries, people don't think in those terms. You couldn't possibly imagine a mechanism could, that could deliver on that kind of thing. So you certainly have cosmopolitan theories, or you certainly have universal theories. I mean, just think of a Christian ethic of, of loving your neighbour and so on, and that way in which a language of cosmopolitanism has been mobilised to try and make people concerned about the fate of peoples on the other side of the world. Certainly that kind of rhetoric was an important part of the anti-slavery campaign, am I not a man and a brother, that kind of ethical appeal. But I think something has changed in the way that theorists now try to specify principles of global distributive justice that make quite far-reaching claims about the entitlements that individuals anywhere have regardless of their citizenship status or regardless of the conditions of life that they're born into. I think that debate has changed. But certainly, if you go back to the 18th century, you find the core issues being debated, which concern the tensions between organising a decent society locally and the difficulties that cross-border commerce generate for that. So one of the interesting texts is the German philosopher Fichte's book from 1800, The Closed Commercial State, where Fichte argues that the best political theory we have, roughly speaking, is Jean-Jacques Rousseau's theory of republicanism from his book The Social Contract. The best theory of political economy we have, roughly speaking, is Adam Smith's work in The Wealth of Nations. The trouble is these don't sit comfortably together because the workings of international commerce tend to undermine the kind of social solidarities and the kinds of egalitarianism on which Rousseauist politics depends. And so Fichte's idea is you close the borders. That's to say you have a commercial society, you have a society made up of people who are producing goods for sale 
on markets who are exchanging with their fellow citizens. But nobody's allowed to buy and sell with foreigners without some kind of official permission. And then Fichte's thought is, if you've got a closed economy like that, then you can have what we would call measures of social democracy. You can have, so he thought you could have a jobs guarantee. You could have the the state guaranteeing to all citizens who wanted to work a job that would be paid for out of public funds. When you close the borders, economies become manageable, and they become manageable in the service of attractive political ends. And in a sense, what Fichte is seeing is the predicament of the globalization that people began to obsess about in the 1990s, that when you have open borders, you have the world of the race to the bottom and the world of outsourcing manufacture to cheap parts of the world, and you get certain kinds of pressure on the way welfare states operate. And the idea that the way you deal with that is by greatly restricting international commerce, that's a very old one. Inequality is on many accounts, a fundamental challenge to the idea that we live in a just society. How should we think about contemporary inequality, do you think, against the standards of distributive justice? Is it, should we assume that it is unjust? Yes. I think it's very difficult to argue that the inequalities that pervade a society like ours are just. I think very few people do think they're just, And in particular, you see that, I think, in the kind of nervous energy that's expended over debates about schooling and access to universities and so on, where lots of people, they're not egalitarians in the sense that they think that everyone should have the same standard of living and so on, but there's a very powerful entrenched belief in the kind of society we live in that such inequalities as there are have to come about in a certain way that have something to do with people's own choices and people's own efforts and so on. And that's why there's something radically unfair about a world in which privileges and opportunities are systematically available to certain sections of the population and denied to others. The two issues that I'd point to, I think, that become a bit more complicated, one of them is a so what story, that if you think that inequalities are unjust, what, if anything, should individual citizens think, if anything, they can do about it beyond voting for their preferred political party once every few years or so? That's to say, the academic literature focuses a lot on what the shape of the system would look like, but there's a real puzzle about even if you do think what a decent system would look like, how do you get there from here? What are the political mechanisms? What are the kind of agencies that might might produce positive outcomes over the long run. And one of the difficulties is that one of the things that modern economics teaches us is that there are lots and lots of unintended consequences, that if people act in an individual way, in ways that they believe are going to produce benign outcomes, often you get all kinds of other unintended outcomes that then complicate things. So I think there are complicated issues about the move from, as it were, thinking globally to thinking locally, or from thinking about the individual level to thinking about the systemic level. The other thing, I think, is that there is a quite a wide social consensus these days on this idea that the unfairness of the society we currently live in would be mitigated considerably if we lived in a more meritocratic society. But once you start heading firmly in that direction, again, a lot of different divisions will open up about whether a meritocracy is simply a society that is less unfair than the current one, or whether it represents a vision of a just society in its own right. And one of the things that's always worth remembering in that regard is that meritocracy, the word was invented by Michael Young 
as a dystopia to describe a world that we should be very nervous of. Um, and the reason why Michael Young in the 1950s thought that a meritocracy would be a bad idea is that he thought that the elite in a meritocracy would feel that it owed nothing to those less fortunate than themselves. That's to say, the rulers could look down on the rule because they, the rulers, deserved to rule. And the idea was that an old-fashioned conservatism had at least this virtue, the the rulers, the fortunate, the, the lucky, had a sense that they were lucky and that it was simply a matter of uh, good fortune that they were in charge and other people were not. And Young's idea was that that, that sense of contingency had a tendency to humanise the rule of elites. So I think a lot of people think that a more meritocratic society would be an improvement on what we have at the moment. A deep disagreement can open up about whether this is a model of a just society or another radically imperfect kind of society that would then need to be remodelled again. We currently live in a world where, globally, it's becoming more equal in the sense that hundreds of millions of people are being brought out of poverty, including extreme poverty. Locally, at the national level, it's often becoming more unequal. Do you think we're living in a juster or an increasingly less just world? The huge transformation that's driving that kind of change is the transformation of of China, where hundreds of millions of very, very poor rural workers are now able to command a higher standard of living, often through migration to the cities and work in the factories there. I think that's right, that anyone is going to welcome the lifting of tens of millions of hundreds of millions of people out of the worst kinds of poverty. But I think this transformation of the world's population from being principally agricultural to being a principally industrial population from the countryside to the cities, and indeed a general question about where China is going and whether the Chinese model is sustainable. I think those are the massive questions of politics and economics and geography that need to be thought about in a very hard-headed and a very empirical way. Is this sustainable? Where is it going? Rather than trying to crunch inputs into a what Jeremy Bentham called the philosophic calculus and try and say whether this is just or, or for the better simply on the basis of recent changes in standards of living. But absolutely, the diminishing portion of the world's population that lives in conditions of absolute poverty has to be welcomed from a, the broadly ethical perspective. To get links to further reading, do follow us at tppodcast underscore. Our next Talking Politics guide is going to be on machine learning. My name is David Runciman and we've been Talking Politics. Is that, is that a Corbyn phrase, interesting? Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's like, it's one notch down from gammon. Uh, no, it, it, it's a different, uh, no, it's a different uh, genealogy. So the first two distinctive Corbyn abuse words were slug and melt, where a slug was a Blairite and a melt was somebody like Owen Jones, who used to be really, really keen on Corbyn and then had a massive wobble. So, um, and Centrist, centrist Dad Centrist Dad is, was, a fu- was more of a funny hashtag. Uh, yeah, and Centrist Dad was originally slapped onto people like David Aronovich, right. who had that sort of vote in the Times and had that sort of high-minded, mm-hmm. you, you young people, you don't understand. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, so there's a mm. there is a riff on the Postman Pat theme tune that goes something like <laughs> centrist, centrist dad, dad yeah, centrist no, dad, dad. Um, uh, things uh, things just aren't no, things really aren't just black and white lad. <laughs> right. Yeah. Okay. We're looking for new music. Oh, new yeah. Okay. I see. Yeah. Okay. I see how. We- Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Are you ready for truly hydrated skin? Meet Hyaluronic Body Serum, a breakthrough in body care from Osea. It's clinically proven to instantly increase hydration by 161%. Their lightweight, fast-absorbing serum delivers 24 hours of nonstop hydration for silky, smooth skin without the sticky afterfeel. Osea's latest innovation combines the magic of their best-selling Hyaluronic Sea Serum with a new formula that's good for the whole body and five types of hyaluronic acid to target every layer of the skin. Osea is a women-founded, women-led brand that's been crafting seaweed-powered products for nearly 30 years. The best part? Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code SUMMER at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com code SUMMER.